0: Get ready to laugh out loud at the Tribeca Festival, June 5th to June 16th in NYC. Experience hilarious talks, comedy specials, and feel-good films with your fan-favorite comedians like Hannah Einbinder, Judd Apatow, Neil Patrick Harris, Take Nataro, and more. You have to be there. Get your tickets now at TribecaFilm.com.
1: Hey, Sean Ramosver, I'm host of Vox's Daily News Podcast today. Explain, but of course, I'm once again here to talk to you about Vox Conversations, where we're bringing you conversations between some of the brightest minds and smartest people we know. Today on the show, Soraya Nadia McDonald. She's a culture critic for the undefeated and a big fan of television. She loves shows like Watchmen. And today on the show, she's going to talk with the very dude who's written for that and other big name shows. His name, Core Jefferson all about what it's like to transition from writing journalism to writing television and about what needs to change in TV's writers' rooms and, and what our current era of streaming giants and tech barons means for news and popular culture. Here's Saraya Nadia McDonald.
2: If you don't know the name Cord Jefferson, you almost certainly know his work. He's an Emmy Award winner who's written for some of the best-known and most well-regarded shows of our TV boom time. They include Survivor's Remorse, The Good Place, Succession, Master of None, The Nightly Show with Larry Wilmore, and my personal favorite, Watchmen. With his recently signed deal with Warner Brothers Media, his career is on a path to only expand from here. But before he wrote television, Cord was a journalist who wrote and edited for the Nick Denton-owned media company and site Gawker. Writing for a gossip blog known for its sensationalism and, uh, let's say, irreverence is quite a contrast from the warmth, empathy, and earnestness of a lot of the shows that he went on to help create. So I wanted to know how he came to make this dramatic shift of tone in his professional work. What it's like to be at the center of two very different waves of media innovation, not to mention a writer of shows and subjects other writers are obsessed with. <laughs> with his launch earlier this year of a fellowship to fund journalists looking to transition to TV, Cord's not only looking to help others do what he did, but also bring more diversity to TV writers' rooms. Cord Jefferson welcome. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you so much for
3: having me. I'm uh, I'm really honored.
2: And congratulations on your statue.
3: <laughs> Thank awesome. you. Thank you very much. <laughs> I just, yeah, we won it in September, but you know, there was delays due to COVID. So it just arrived a couple weeks ago. So it's uh, it feels a little surreal.
2: Where have you where have you put it?
3: Just on a bookcase in my bedroom. I, I you know I have friends who told me that I should put it in the living room right when you walk in but that's that feels a little aggressive. I don't, I don't, <laughs> I don't feel the need to do that.
2: So I want to make sure I have this right. Where were you living when you were working for Gawker?
3: Uh, when I was working for Gawker I was living in Los Angeles and so my title was West Coast Editor not because I did very much editing or or sort of was covering all of California, but just because I didn't want to move to New York. And so they said, that's fine. And they just gave me the title West Coast Editor. But mostly I was just blogging like everybody else.
4: Oh,
2: wow. Okay, so that's really interesting because like Gawker... It's reputation, the sort of like original recipe gawker, is as this very like New York centric media entity and, you know, enfant terrible.
3: (laughs) Yeah, that's an elegant Um, way of putting it. (laughs) Most people (laughs) would just say a bunch of jerks. (laughs) (laughs)
2: <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so when you, you know, when you start working there, why? You know, cuz I'm sure you are aware of the reputation that yeah. I'm like how did you see your career unfolding?
3: So the way that I got hired at Gawker was that I had been working previously for the previous 2 years at, at this magazine called Good, which almost was like literally the polar opposite in tone and style than from Gawker. So it was this magazine that was dedicated to, you know, improving the world and, and spotlighting people who are trying to sort of like change the world with, with these big, grand ideas. And I worked there with people like Ann Friedman and Amanda Hess and Tim Fernholz and, and Megan Greenwell, all these people who have gone on to have amazing careers in journalism and, and do wonderful things. And so I was very happy there. But they, in 2012, uh, decided that they didn't want to publish a magazine anymore. And so they fired all of us and shuttered the magazine. So I was kind of adrift and I had written a couple freelance things for Gawker. And I think what drew me to the site was that despite the fact that it was entirely different from what Good was trying to do and what I'd been trying to do in my previous job, it felt like there was freedom there. And it felt like a pirate ship in in a good way. It was like this kind of island of misfit toys of people from all different backgrounds and walks of life who had come together because they sort of had this devotion to telling true stories and trying to make waves and 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 do things that other people were not doing. And, and so it felt like a place where somebody who was ambitious and excited to write could make a name for themselves. I really loved my jobs in journalism, and I feel very grateful to have had the ones that I had. But, you know, as you know yourself, journalism comes with a variety of ethics and rules and ways you do things um, in order to sort of like stay between the lines. And I think that something that was exciting to me was going to a place that didn't have those rules and sort of you could do what you wanted to do and write what you wanted to write and say what you wanted to say without a lot of restrictions and i think that everybody who worked at gawker would probably admit that that sometimes that that worked out for the worst but you know i wasn't really thinking in those terms i was mostly just excited to to work there because i had been such a fan of it for so long
2: yeah how old were you when you started working at gawker 2012
3: i was uh 30 it was the year i turned oh, wow, 30 oh that's
2: exciting cuz i was just like going back and reading like some of your old stuff And you have this piece that you wrote about Mad Men. And basically, if we're thinking back, (laughs) everyone was just sort of like vociferously consuming the show, like really obsessively every week, right? And trying to suss out what Matt Weiner was, what clues he was, you know, leaving by like the books that Don was reading and all this sort of stuff. And you're talking about how the men in this show are really just kind of terrible people. And if you want to kind of like, if you want to make a terrible person look good, just put them in a Don Draper <laughs> Yeah, costume.
3: That was the first thing that I ever written for Gawker, actually. Uh, and, you know, I, I really, really love Mad Men. In my opinion, Mad Men is the greatest show that's ever been made for TV. That's at least my favorite. But I think that Likewise. they're... Oh, really?
2: Yes. I, oh, wow. <laughs> I didn't know that. In fact, like after I watched like the first six episodes, because that's what HBO said, like of the screeners for Watchmen, I was like, I have never loved something this much, except for Mad Men. Oh, wow.
3: That well, (laughs) I mean, that is high praise, because I consider myself one of like the biggest Mad Men fans in the world. But I think that for me, there was no getting around the sort of way that culture really adopted that show and sort of like took away from the things that, like these guys are so cool like it, it's so cool to be Don Draper it's so cool yeah. to be Roger Sterling. they're really cool and it's like if you they're I mean miserable. yeah they're, they're all very unhappy alcoholics who are constantly uh cheating on their spouses because they're unhappy in their relationships mm-hmm. and they're racist and they're homophobic and they and they're huge misogynists I, I just I just the way that sort of culture latched on to these men as sort of being heroic. I mean, it's not just a Mad Men phenomenon. I think that that happens every time that there's an antihero. Right. Same thing happened with Tony Soprano. Same thing happens with, Walter like, White. Walter White. Yeah, yeah. and the, the villainization of Skylar as just being, like, this monster who won't let her husband oh God. kill everybody and, and sell meth all the time as being, like, this evil antagonist who's, like, ruining Walter's life. Right. That happens with with every show, but I think that it was, it sort of seemed especially pronounced because there wasn't, like, GQ style guides for Walter White. There wasn't like GQ style guides right. for like Christopher, uh Maltesanti and stuff. Like like those guys weren't, I think, being um valorized in the way that that Don Draper and Roger Sterling and the rest of the people on Mad Men were. It felt odd to me. It, was it felt such like a cool treat. Yeah. I mean it's such a cool looking show and everybody on it looks cool and they're attractive. And so I understand the impulse to do that, but it, it felt like that was happening In such a way that sort of like people were forgetting what the actual, at least in my perspective, like what the point of the show was. And I think it was like especially pronounced because it was a show that like subjugated women so deeply and just like had no Mm -hmm. black people or like any person of color really on it at all in such a way Mm -hmm. until the later season. And then those people were subjugated. Um, Right. There was a lot of discussion at that time. About shows like, you know, because there was a discussion of girls not having many people of color, despite the fact that it was set in New York City. They're like, how is this show set in New York not full of like black and brown people? Uh, And then Lena
2: Dunham said, I'll show you. I'm going to have a black boyfriend and he's going to be a republican. <laughs>
3: yeah. <laughs> yeah, I actually never saw that episode, but I but I remember uh oh, talking to a lot of people about it after after I published that piece. Yeah, it was all it felt like it was all sort of like in the in the air at the same time when I wrote that.
2: I want to put a pin in this cuz I actually think this is really interesting and like I have questions for you, you know, sort of about your television writing sensibility, but I also want to talk about Gawker a little bit more before we get to that. Yeah, happy to. The glory days of Gawker were eventually brought to an end due to a lawsuit by tech baron Peter Thiel. Um, For those who don't know, Peter Thiel is a billionaire who co-founded PayPal, um, the VC fund, Palantir. He was the first outside investor in Facebook but he's he's not especially well regarded among those who used to work at Gawker. So tell us why that is, Cord. <laughs>
3: um, I will firstly say that, that I left Gawker by the time the Peter Thiel drama was, was unfolding and uh, the Hulk mm-hmm. Hogan stuff. So I wasn't yeah. sort of in the thick of it the way some of my former colleagues were. But I will just to sort of like give uh, an understanding to your listeners who may not know, Hulk Hogan brought a lawsuit against Gawker, which had published... Uh, a tape of him having sex with his friend's wife. And Gawker published, uh, I believe, a 10-second excerpt of that tape. And Hulk Hogan sued. And what came out in the course of the lawsuit was that Hulk Hogan, his lawsuit was being funded by a slush fund that Peter Thiel had established at a law firm for anybody who wanted to sue Gawker. So anybody who wanted to bring a lawsuit against Gawker would have their legal fees paid for by Peter Thiel. Who was out to basically destroy Gawker. So
2: it's almost like a war of attrition, but with money, which he has. Yeah, which he has gobs
3: of. of, Yeah, which he has way more of than nearly everybody on Earth. And so, you know, he pretty quickly, effectively bankrupted Gawker. Wow. Yeah.
2: So, you know, I remember watching this, you know, sort of unfold and the sense of. I mean, doom, frankly, (laughs) that I think kind of resulted because, you know, unless you are a super huge news organization that has a billionaire of your own, you know, vis-a-vis Jeff Bezos and the Washington Post, it's kind of a scary proposition of, of what can happen, you know, with having a person who is basically able to kind of like sue an organization it doesn't like out of existence.
3: Absolutely. Yeah, I think that the sort of like billionaire ownership of media properties and sort of like the slow sort of trend toward billionaires owning all of uh, media and then sort of deciding which publications get to live or die based on their whims and, and their grudges. Uh, I think is, yeah, a very dangerous place to be, especially because we are quickly moving toward, I believe, I think Barack Obama, when he was doing his book tour, called it an epistemological crisis. So I'm stealing that term from him. Oh my. And and sort of essentially what he's talking about is is sort of the way that now that there are outlets that are outflanking Fox on the right and many outlets mm-hmm. outflanking like MSNBC on the left and that, you know, we no longer exist in a country where facts mean anything. And sort of like there there are multiple determinations now of like what one plus one equals. Uh, You know, Newsmax is going to tell you something different from Fox, which is going to tell you something different from the New York Times, which is going to tell you something different from uh, another outlet. I just think that the fact that we cannot agree on basic factual information is a scary place to be. And the fact that the richest people in the world can sort of like manipulate those publications and and kill them and and, and sort of bring them back to life when and if they want to is, uh, I think, sort of only adds to the, the terror around this entire thing.
2: Yeah. I mean, you know, we spent the past four or five years hearing daily attacks on the news media coming from the president of the United States himself, someone Peter Thiel supported. I know this isn't your problem anymore, but what are we going
3: to do? <laughs> <laughs> I wish I had an answer. I think that, you know, I, I just try to support good journalism. I try to pay for subscriptions to journalistic outlets that I believe are doing good, important work. But, I, but you know, there's this slow march. I, we just found out that just the other day that hedge fund bought the Tribune Company, which is like another, oh, a, a, another horrific development in the world of journalism. And, and you know, that they're going to do what hedge funds do and just strip those places for parts. And I think that the deterioration mm-hmm. of... Good local journalism is going to lead to probably a lot of people getting away with a lot of gross things in, in these sort of like smaller market cities, yeah. unfortunately. And, and and it seems like, you know, unfortunately, we're going to be left with the L.A. Times, the New York Times and the Washington Post as sort of like the sort of main contenders for, yeah. for truth and, and decency in journalism, which is horrifying because I think that, you know, the the work that those kind of small market papers have been doing for literally centuries is so, so, so important. So I know all of that is is just more doom, doom and gloom. There's not really any solutions there. I mean, but it's important to talk about because I don't think people really sort of like recognize the dangers of these things. I think that the yes. the, the importance of small market journalism I think cannot be understated. And the and the, yeah. the things the work that those journalists were doing and sort of like the stories they were uncovering and the sort of like the corruption in those in those places was yeah. very, very mm-hmm. helpful and beneficial to a lot of the people in those in those cities and, and states. So it's a scary thing that, that should be discussed.
2: Yeah. And I mean, you know, this is something that basically comes up in succession. Um, Mm -hmm. you know, not exactly, but it is about this sort of dynastic media family. They're sort of strange in that way that, like, extremely wealthy New York white rich people are. <laughs> yes.
4: <laughs> um,
2: but yeah, but there is a storyline where the Roys, you know, where the company basically ends up, I would say, going on this boondoggle with this web based media venture that feels very similar to the kind of space that Gawker occupied. Falter. Yeah, Falter, yes. exactly.
4: <laughs> yes. I believe Walter is the future of this company. I'm, se- I'm fucking s- dead serious. Just You can't question my belief in what you've all built here. You know, in, in, in what Lawrence has built. But if we're going to come through here, we need to be light on our feet. That's why I personally think it would be a mistake for you to unionize.
2: Tell us about, like, developing that, you know, I think part of the reason why it's such an object of obsession on Twitter is because Twitter is so heavily populated and used by journalists. Yeah, media Um, types, of course. And we're like, oh, we recognize that. Yeah,
3: that's. Yeah. Yeah, I think the reason that that spoke to so many people is because I think that people have really rallied around journalism stories. So you have all the president's men, you have Spotlight, you have the newsroom, you know, audiences are drawn to those things. But I think that something that's unfortunate is for many journalists, what's not being captured is the present moment, which is a very scary moment for a lot of journalists. And I think that uh, the reason that... <laughs> the, right? And I, th- and I think that the reason that that episode and that sort of like season in particular spoke to journalists is because that's sort of what it feels like for a lot of people, you know? I, I think that if you talk to any journalist in America right now, I would say a, a large number of them are, are very terrified about the precarity of their professional situation. And I think that a lot of them yeah. are... I'm just waiting for their time on the chopping block and and they're uncertain when that's going to come. And so I think that an episode that speaks to that, that sort of like speaks to the way that the millionaires and the billionaires of the world are are marching into these places and sort of like just eliminating people's uh, livelihoods and, and careers based on a whim feels very real to people.
4: Okay, guys, everybody, if I can just have a second. I just wanted to update you on a couple of developments. Uh, Some of you may have noticed, servers are down. And we're setting a satellite office on 7. And I'm afraid I have to inform you, you are all dismissed. Yeah, you're you're all fired. So if you can leave your laptops where they are and hand in your passes, security will be coming around now. Been through everything you've shown me. Food and weed. Those are the only two verticals driving revenue, so we're folding them in, and uh, yeah, you're all free to leave. This is a joke.
3: When I interviewed for Succession, they asked me very specifically about Gawker, and so I assumed that that was going to be a storyline in the season. And then when we got Mm -hmm. in there, I sort of, (laughs) we we talked a lot about unionization, because there was another writer on the show, uh, Will Tracy, who had worked at The Onion when um, mm-hmm. sort of like The Onion was going through its change right, of ownership yeah. and, and sort of like layoffs and stuff. And so he and I had a lot of PTSD from our days oh, in the trenches. And a lot of that went, went into that episode in that season.
2: So the thing I wonder is because of the experiences that you have like in life and, you know, the sort of sensibilities that I think once you develop as a journalist are very difficult to shake. Particularly when it comes to pouring sunlight into areas that people obviously want to keep dark, yeah, for whatever reason, I'm really interested in how you navigate this in a world of make believe.
3: You're like navigating in my storytelling. You're saying, yeah without speaking too much the two projects that i'm that i'm currently are most imminent for things that i want to create one of them is scraper which is based on journalism and 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 you know it's about a lot of other things but but one of the things it's about is is about journalism today and, and sort of what it looks like and and the the pressures it's under and the, the players in in the journalism economy these days so i'm touching on it there and then the other show that I'm working on is also set in the world of journalism and is about a, a completely different person and sort of like the the way that the journalism and media is, is going these days. So I, I am trying to touch on these things because I think that they are of great importance. And I think that I have yet to see a journalism story that really speaks to me and the way that my life was when I was a journalist and the way that a lot mm. of my friends lives are at present because they're still journalists. And I think that yeah. I'm trying to put something on the air that I think speaks a little bit m- more to the reality of the situation now, not to discredit any of the work that, you know, Spotlight has done or The Post or or any of those other things because I think they're all good and, and, and have merit and, and are important stories yeah. to tell. But I just think that none of them really feel relevant to the way that that I did journalism or the way that my friends do journalism.
2: Okay, you are a person that fascinates me because it almost feels like you're you're kind of like media Forrest Gump.
3: <laughs> what does that mean? <laughs> I was hoping you didn't mean like slow-witted, no. sitting on a bus stop like a Not mor- at
4: all. <laughs>
2: <laughs> no, you just managed to like somehow like be around for everything. <laughs> okay, let's take a quick break, and when we're back. This is a boom time for TV makers, but it's also a time when a few giant companies control enormous swaths of the entertainment we all consume. Is this a problem? I ask Port Jefferson what he thinks after the break.
0: Did you know the Tribeca Festival premieres more than just film and TV? Tribeca's audio storytelling program, sponsored by Audible, is happening June 9th to 13th in NYC. It includes premieres of new indie podcasts and live tapings of popular podcasts you know and love. Attend Slow Burn, the hit narrative podcast exploring the Briggs Initiative. Experience an exclusive live taping of Criminal with special guest Melissa McCarthy as they investigate complex stories of people who've done wrong or been wronged. Or get a vibe check on today's politics, entertainment and news with a live taping of Vibe Check with Lena Waithe. Don't miss it. Get your tickets now at TribecaFilm.com.
2: Okay, so we're talking about media consolidation. We're talking about a tiny group of people having an enormous amount of power when it comes to determining what people see, which I think has even, I think, become sort of more heightened, like the importance of that because we're all stuck at home (laughs) Um, during this pandemic and people have been sort of like just going through TV shows, I think, faster. We're just in our houses all the time And you have a few companies that basically control enormous segments of entertainment, basically AT&T, Viacom, Disney, Comcast, Universal, and then you have like the tech companies, you have like Netflix, Amazon, Apple. What's the thing that worries you most about this environment? Like if Elizabeth Warren was like, okay, we're going to take a close look at media the way we did with consumer finance. And she called you before a Senate committee hearing, or there was a congressional hearing, like, what would you say?
3: I would, A, say that I'm far too ignorant of these issues to be put in front of a sent committee. (laughs) I would would say that. (laughs) Firstly, I would say you should call somebody who's much more uh, well-versed in these issues than than me. I do think that any time we are seeing a handful of companies or individuals being responsible for the information that is disseminated to the world is a dangerous, it's a dangerous scenario. And any anytime that we are sort of just seeing everything contract so that, you know, five or six corporations run basically 90% of the information that is being disseminated to the globe, that's not a good thing. I do think that creatively, it seems like we are in boon time. Yeah. I think that a lot of people are getting a lot of opportunities to create a lot of film and television. And I think that that is good. It feels like there's just a ton of outlets for the stuff that I want to make and the stuff that other people want to make. And it seems like at least mm-hmm. the people that I want to work with are being very thoughtful about bringing in women and people of color and queer people and other minority groups that have been sort of like closed out of entertainment for so long. So mm-hmm. I will say that there are, even in these big, powerful positions, there are very, very thoughtful people who are thinking about these things and thinking about how to, um, remedy some of the problems that have been plaguing this industry for a long time. So it does seem like that now is a good time for people who want to be in this industry to make stuff and, and to try to make interesting stuff that stands out from the rest. So, you know, I think that eventually maybe something will have to be done. Uh, but for the time being, I. I don't want to say Elizabeth Warren needs to come in and, and, and clean house in Hollywood. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I love Elizabeth Warren, but I don't know that she needs to do that yet.
2: <laughs> Look, my paychecks come from Disney, right? Which owns yeah. ESPN, which owns the undefeated. <laughs> like That's usually my spiel. Every I totally time. forget
3: about that. Yeah,
2: that's true. And I totally understand what you mean. And, you know, this migration from news media to narrative TV and film, you know, it's something, it's always been present, right? It's not like this is new, but it does feel like lately there's more of a mass exodus. You're saying from, from
3: journalism into entertainment?
2: Yes. Like, in fact, like the television critics association press tour is happening and there was an announcement basically that Al Letson reveal, you know, which is the podcast hosted by the Center for Investigative Reporting you know, he's got a show that's coming up. <laughs> there's Danielle Henderson, who used to write for Vulture. She left, you know, like writing about pop culture to make it. Or Lindy West, right? Who is also a Jezebel.
3: Yeah.
2: You know, now her book Shrill has been adapted into a Hulu series starring Aidy Bryant, right? These are just a few examples. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it feels like there's this moment of big voices taking their talents to Hollywood. And you yourself have, you know, recently announced the creation of a writing fellowship named for your mother, the Susan M. Haas fellowship. Yeah. That feels like it's also kind of facilitating this. Yeah. <laughs> I think I saw you tweet that basically you kept getting emails from people asking you how you made this transition.
3: <laughs> yeah. Dozens, t- dozens of times a year. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Uh,
2: so so tell me about this particular fellowship. Like, why do you feel like it was needed?
3: Since I've been working in TV now for about seven years, and I would get literally dozens of emails a year from friends of mine who were journalists or people who uh, were journalists and, and sort of just only knew knew me through acquaintances. And they would ask me, you know, how did you make the transition into TV? And I would try as often as I could to get on the phone with these people and give them some pointers. I mean, the way that I got into TV was, you know, one day a guy read some of my journalism and asked me to come write for his TV show, which, which at the time I thought was probably pretty common, and I've since learned is not common at all. And so, was this
2: I, Survivor's Remorse?
3: Yeah, yeah, it was Mike O'Malley for Survivor's Remorse. Yeah. But so the way that I got into it was, you know, pretty unorthodox way of getting into it is is somebody read my work and asked me to come work on his TV show. And and then I just stayed in it. So I would talk to these people. And I would say, you know, here's what I think you can do. But I don't really know how I I can't I can't tell you how I did it. Because the way that I did it is probably not, you know, it's no guarantee that that's gonna work out for you. So I would always hang up the phone feeling badly and feeling like I, I wish that I could do more in some way. And so when I signed this deal with Warner Brothers, I, I sort of came into more money than I thought that I would ever make in my whole life, and 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 I thought, you know, what 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 can I do with this? Th- thanks, <laughs> thanks. I you know I I think that if any writer gets into writing to be rich, like you, that is a bad 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 choice. Yeah. You know, I got it. <laughs> yeah, I, I got it. I got it into writing because it was basically the only thing that I really was good at that I liked. So um, I sort of I came into you know some money and, and was and was wondering what can I do with this that will feel good and feel like it's helping people? And I, I immediately went to the the journalism fellowship because I think that, I, I tell this to journalists when I talk to them individually, but I really do think that journalists make for good TV writers because I think that to be a good journalist, you have to be kind of a, a renaissance person. You have to be interested in a lot mm-hmm. of different things. You've mm-hmm. got to do your own research. You've got to mm-hmm. be interested in talking to people. Like you have to be a curious person to be a good journalist. Yeah. And so I think that that is very helpful for TV writers is like, Curiosity and an openness to new ideas and sort of like exploring things and doing in-depth research on your own. Like those are all things that I think translate well to TV writing. And, you know, you have an ear for dialogue because you're interviewing people and talking to people all the time. And you, you're interested in like stories and sort of like getting to the bottom of stories and mysteries, like mm-hmm. all of these things that make good journalists, I think, make for good television writers. So I would always tell people like, this is something that you, you would probably be good at because you've developed this like range of skills as a journalist already. So a guy picked it, Mike O'Malley emailed me and said, would you want to come try writing for the show? I think you'd be good at it. And he and the rest of the people on the show, you know, really walked me through the motions of how to work on a TV show, of how to be in a writer's room of like what it looks like. And then, Mm -hmm. you know, I left there and had like incredible mentors along the way, like Damon Lindelof and like Mike Schur and, and, and any number of other people that I've worked with who taught me. And, you know, six years after I started writing for TV, I won an Emmy Award. And I don't say that to brag. I say that to explain that, like, I didn't start TV writing until I was in my 30s. And it wasn't something that I studied in college. It wasn't like anything that I had had tried before. I'd I'd never really written a script until I worked on my first show. So I say that to just explain that like, I think that something we've gotten away from in a lot of industries is on-the-job training. And sort of like, I think we've gotten away from the fact that like, if you get somebody who's dedicated and smart and ambitious, it doesn't Mm -hmm. matter if they don't know a lot about what you're doing, like they will learn and you can teach them and help them grow. And so I think that... I'm trying to put that into action and put my money where my mouth is and say that, like, I think that you can take people who have not done this before and sort of teach them over the course of six months and sort of, like, develop their skills and get them, allow them to get a foothold in this industry and then hopefully build a pathway for themselves. And, I, you know, you know I, I think that now is especially a good time to do this just because journalism is being decimated in so many ways by so many ghouls. I know that there's a lot of journalists who who are incredibly talented writers and reporters and, and they're looking for, you know, a lifeline. And so hopefully this can serve as a lifeline for at least a couple people.
2: And it's a way to keep writing.
3: Exactly. A way to keep writing and a way to sort of like learn some new skills and, and hopefully a way to sort of like make some money so that, you know, there's nothing that says you have to step away from journalism forever. I still have an interest in doing journalism when I, when I can find the time. I think that my literary heroes are, are people like James Baldwin and Joan Didion, not just because I think that their work is great, But because both of them and other people, but but both of them Mm -hmm. in particular, I think really looked at being a writer as being this sort of like, very broad thing and very big yeah. and sort of like looking at it as like a toolbox like with a toolbox you can make a desk you can make a dining room table you can uh-huh. make a rocking chair like like you can utilize that toolbox to, to make a bunch of different things and so you know they would go write a book of essays and then they would write a screenplay and then they would write a stage play mm-hmm. and then they would write a novel and then they would go like follow a, a candidate around or James Baldwin would follow a civil rights leader around and then write a, write a few like journalistic articles about these things like mm-hmm. what it meant to be a writer to them was very big and i think that you know unfortunately like culture has diminished people's belief it's in very themselves siloed. yeah and then and people will say like oh, well i'm i'm a sports writer or i'm a political journalist or i'm a music critic like as opposed right. to like you're a writer like just and, and you can do a bunch of different things and you should try to do a bunch of different things
2: i love that i love that it feels like common sense you know if you can write like you can learn how to sort of adapt to different types of writing exactly
3: yeah. and i I honestly believe that a storyteller is a storyteller a storyteller. I think that if you can tell a story around a campfire and keep people engaged, you can probably write an article. And if you can write an article, you can probably write a novel. And if you can write a novel, you can probably write a screenplay. Like, I think that those skills translate. And I think that also those skills can be developed. I think that that is something that you can learn how to do and be good at. If only you're given the opportunity. And the problem is, is too many people who are not straight white men are not given that opportunity.
2: I mean, I find it really interesting that in terms of folks who are, like, actively working to bring people into TV writing in particular, if that isn't necessarily their first home, one, the three that I can think of off the top of my head recently have been minorities. Mm. As like you, Jeremy O'Harris, and Katori Hall, mm. um, both of whom have used their sort of TV deal money – to create sort of similar initiatives, but for playwrights, yeah. <laughs> Why did this take so long?
3: <laughs> I, I mean, I think that it—if uh, you do not work in entertainment, it can feel impenetrable from the outside. Like it—it uh-huh. it, it really can't. If you do not know somebody. If you're not a, a kid who like worked on the Harvard Lampoon, and then like you know half of the people that you work with on the Harvard Lampoon like go work on The Simpsons or like some or other SNL. sitcom, or SNL exactly, and sort of like they bring you in, or if you're not like born in LA and your parent, your dad's a producer, your mom's a director, right. like if you do not mm-hmm. have those things, it can feel impenetrable. Like it felt impenetrable to me. I'm a black kid from Tucson, Arizona. Like uh, I don't have any family that was in the industry, and so I was like. I was always interested in it, but I was like that's going to be something that is that is not for me you know i, I it's just like I'm going to have to be sort yeah. of like on the fringes of it forever and so once I got in and I realized like you know I think that there's a lot of people who like the clubby nature of it. I think that mm-hmm. these sorts of like country club mentalities of places exist because there's people who like that there's people who like the gatekeeping like I think that it makes them feel powerful or special to sort of like be in this sort of rarefied air, and I think that that always makes me feel uncomfortable perhaps it's because i was an outsider in so many situations that sort of like the the idea of um coming in and sort of like pulling up the ladder or closing the door makes me feel bad because because i sort of wasn't invited into the party sometimes uh, or a lot of the time when i was when i was growing up and 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 first working and so I'll just say that for me it felt like something that I almost needed to do when when I got to this position.
2: You know, you don't seem to take yourself very seriously. It's true. You know, you 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 come off very much as like a writer's writer. I am wondering what it is like to see yourself becoming something of an object of thirst. <laughs> um,
3: you know, you you don't go into uh, this is also a thing you don't go into writing for one of the reasons writing spoke to me as a career is because I tend to be... I'm a pretty introverted guy. There's a lot of sort of like tumult in my interiority. I, there's a lot of... Uh, <laughs> there's a lot... Uh, the surface may look placid, but I promise you there's a lot of activity under the surface that is um, anxiety and fear and anger, any 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 number of sort of like tumultuous uh, emotions. But I became a writer in many ways because I, I sort of like to be alone in, in my room with with my thoughts. And so... I'm very sort of nervous about being the center of attention. It's never been my M.O. I'm not a, I think that there's actors for that. And so like, I'm happy.
2: (laughs) I'm always happy to let the actors take center stage while I sort of like sit behind them and write the lines. You know, I knew there was something. Because earlier in our conversation, I was like, okay, we're going to put a pin in this. And it was about Mad Men and the gulf that can occur between the ways that an audience can kind of valorize terrible people. And the way that they are written on shows that are really interesting and are not necessarily saying that these people should be valorized. And so knowing that like that is something that you observed, you know, back before you started writing TV, but you seem to have managed to kind of like circumvent that thing that we were witnessing with people being sort of taken in by Don Draper's handsomeness and mm-hmm. And that sort of smoothing over his misery and, you know, the way he's like inflicting that on other people.
3: I think that one of the nice things about, I think, well-written stuff is that it sort of allows you to, to see the universality of the human condition. And so I think that that for me, when I approached succession, it's like, I don't, I'm not friends with white billionaires. Like those, that's, <laughs> that, that's not, that's not like who I hang out with. That's not, that's not the life that I'm from, right? Like, and right. so... So you, I think that you can approach those situations going like, well, I don't know anything about this. I don't know anything about these people. And I think that if it were a less well-written, less good show, that that may be a problem. Because a less good show, I think, would maybe look at these people as sort of like one-dimensional caricatures of what we think of a, a, a white billionaire is like. And so right. I think that, that and that may be an issue. But I think that why that show is compelling and good. One of the reasons why the show is compelling and good is because when sort of like the people go in there, they don't just look at it as that. And so so when I look at it as for what it is, it's like, I don't understand what it's like to be a white billionaire, but I do understand what it's like to sort of like have sexual vulnerabilities the way that Roman does. I do understand what it's like to feel like I've disappointed my father the way that Kendall does. I do understand the way that that I feel competitive with my siblings the way that they all do. I just they're human beings before they're uh, white billionaires. And I think that to me, that is what I've always loved about, about film and TV is, you know, I was raised in Tucson, Arizona for the majority of my childhood and which, you know, it's a great city, but it's pretty homogenous. And, and, and my particular corner of it was, was especially homogenous. It was sort of a lot of middle-class to, to very affluent uh, white people. And, And so I used TV and, and movies is sort of like a way to get out of there and sort of like explore other, other realities and, and other identities. And so, you know, I remember from a very young age wanting to live in Brooklyn, New York because my parents took me to see do the right thing. They took I was probably oh, a little man. too young to see do the right thing if I'm being honest. But my parents understanding how homogenous Tucson was were like very into me getting black culture where where I could get black culture and so they took me to yes. see so they took me to see do the right thing when I was when I was 7 years old and I and and like I remember being in love with Spike Lee ever since then and sort of knowing that like I was going to move to Brooklyn one day because I wanted (laughs) to I wanted to live in Brooklyn because I wanted to live in like in in Spike Lee movies and so when you're looking at something good I think that you just sort of like understand the universality of the human experience I think that that it doesn't matter if you're watching a Bong Joon-ho movie that's all in Korean or if you're watching a Tarkovsky movie or if you're watching Mm -hmm. sort of like anything that feels like so outside your reality if it's well done then sort of like it scratches that that itch of like, oh, I'm I'm understanding that like all of these people are just human beings just like me, and so I think that for me, that's my goal when I write is the things that I'm trying to create center Black people, and yeah. and the reason that I want to center Black people is because I think that far too often the ways that we've centered the stories in which we've centered Black people and the Black experience has been, I think, stereotypical or 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 you know outright offensive sometimes, and I think that. Thankfully, things seem to be changing for the better in, in that regard. And, and and more people are getting to tell authentic stories in, in their own voice. But I think that I still want to center Black people as just like, you know, just to explore the the reality that we are human beings and that 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 we feel yeah. the same gamut of emotions that you do and go through the same the same issues that anybody does and and you know our stories don't need to take place in poor urban neighborhoods or or in in gangs or or in d- drug enterprises like I, I just think that th- that that has been I love The Wire I will say <laughs> I will say I right love the I was going to say
2: even but, when they are like there is a way to tell those stories that doesn't just fall into a bunch of It's not like condescending. It's just not tropey. Yeah, exactly. And I think that,
3: so I think that for me, that's what I try to, I just try to keep in mind that I'm, when I'm writing things, I'm not writing a white billionaire, like I'm writing a human being. If you're doing it right, you, you have a sort of deeper understanding and a a deeper pursuit than just like the, the cursory stuff.
2: You answered a question that I wasn't sure if it would have been polite to ask, which is is basically, like you are... A handsome, light-skinned Black man who grew up in a majority white town.
3: With a white mother.
2: With a white mother. Yes. There is this love of Black people that just radiates from your writing. That isn't necessarily something to be taken for granted from, from a man who looks like you, frankly. Court. <laughs> <laughs>
3: I appreciate that sentiment. And I think that finding what Blackness meant to me was a very long, hard road. Because of those circumstances, because yeah. a lot of the culture that I absorbed and a lot of the lessons that I learned from childhood, just by osmosis, just by virtue of being raised in America, I think mm-hmm. that I felt like, okay, I'm not, I'm not black enough. Like, I, I, I sort of, mm-hmm. I felt like I, I'm not part of this community because I do not have these things that I think are important. To be a part of the black community and that is like how you dress the music that you listen to the books that you read like the things that you do like felt to me like i needed to be separate from uh from black people that that i was something different and i think that it took me a long time to realize that a lot of those lessons i learned from popular culture made by white people a lot of those lessons yeah. i learned from things that were that were being put out by by white people thinking that they understood black people and, and white people who yes. who were saying like, oh, this is the black experience. And so I'm going to mm-hmm. put this on on television and in movie theaters. And I think that it took me until I was, you know, well, well into my adulthood to realize like when I got to Brooklyn and I saw like, oh my God, like blackness is like huge. Like, yeah. what, it mean, like what it means to be black is like everything. Like everything yeah. is blackness. Like if you're a black right. person, then like you are part of blackness. And so right. I think that for me, I take that task seriously. Like I, I really want to to represent black people in a way that feels real, and and that means I think mm-hmm. that sort of that it feels like important work to me, and it feels like um, something that that I do not take lightly. And so, yeah, I I, I do love black people, and I, and I love telling stories about black people because I think that it's something that hasn't been been done in a way that I think is right. I'm
2: glad we're talking about this because, like, I I feel like I have. A very similar experience to yours in the way that I grew up in North Carolina with a Sephardic Jewish mother from Suriname. Mm. Who basically, like, whenever I just went anywhere with my mother in public, you know, you would just you just got used to sort of getting stares and people just trying to figure out like, what is she? Where? Yeah, you know, oh yeah, that
3: is that your but real I'll, kid? Is, that your real, is yes. that your real? yeah, my mom. <laughs> my mom would always say yeah he's real <laughs>
2: <laughs> and you know but and also sort of like fighting through that kind of essentialism of what it means to be black because of the pop culture and literature and everything else that I was ingesting as I was growing up in the 90s I I identify with that so heavily
3: yeah i think that it sort of it gives you a complex that that is hard to shake and some people will never end yeah. up shaking it but i sort of luckily was able to shake it and eventually just realize like your identity is like whatever you want to make of it like you don't you don't yeah. need to you don't need to posture you don't need to present as a certain way. You don't need to listen to a certain kind of thing. You can sort of live your life and you will be a part of this no matter what.
2: I think what Brooklyn was for you, that was what going to Howard was for me.
3: Mm, Yeah. My dad said when I was a kid, he used to say, uh, and in a way that I think is probably not joking anymore because, because we're talking about this, but my dad used to say like, you need to go to a black college to learn how to be black. Like he, he would, he would, he would outright say that because he was like, he was like, you don't understand so much of the culture. And I was like, all right, whatever. And I still had this like major complex. So I was afraid of going to a black college because I sort of like was worried that I wouldn't fit in or understand anything. But yeah, going to Brooklyn sort of like changed my entire interpretation and understanding of it in a very real way.
2: Well, that is awesome. Thank you so much for sharing that.
3: No, please, please. Happy to. It's uh these are things that I've been thinking a lot about as I've gotten older. They're sort of like my understandings of what it is, especially now because you know, I think we are finally getting to a a time and culture when sort of like blackness is not one thing and people are willing to sort yeah. of like see a lot of different mm-hmm. angles on it and it feels, you know, as somebody who is mm-hmm. creating and writing it, it just feels like freeing in a way that that it it, it didn't feel before.
2: What do you watch? <laughs> Mm. I'm very I'm very curious to hear what you've been watching and you you've been like excited by these days.
3: Uh well, I did a lot of rewatching in quarantine. Rewatched Mad Men, rewatched mm-hmm. The Wire. I also watched um The Good Lord Bird, which I was I, I'm obsessed with it. Did you, you watch The oh, Good God, Lord Bird? I think, yes. I think The Good Lord Bird was amazing and I think that I'm kind of amazed that, that more people aren't talking about it cause, just because I think it's so good right? and I think I think that it's it's sort of like criminally underrated this year because I mean if you were to tell me that like we're going to make a TV show about slavery that's really funny I would say that that is like such an incredibly difficult uh-huh. needle to thread like that is going to be so 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 hard to do and like <laughs> they, yeah, they, did they, they did it they executed it and to me like I am astounded by that that the degree of difficulty is so high but also I think that I sort of love that they tried it because I think that, like, even in the worst of times, people laugh and people are able to find humor and, like, make jokes. Like, that—that that is the reality exactly. of, of the world. And so I think that I understand why so many slavery movies and shows have been very somber uh, tone yeah. because, like, they are somber subjects mm-hmm. and, and very sort of, like, grim, grim subjects. But to say, like, we are going to treat this with gravity— that um is befitting it, but also we're going to find time to laugh and have some levity. That to me right. is like I mean I loved that and I aspire to to do that. That to me is the best stuff. Like I, I think that if you look at the sort of pantheon of television, like mm-hmm. I think people tend to forget how funny the Sopranos was. I think people tend to forget how funny how funny Mad Men is. Like I think that and I like, think that the, darkly funny. Yeah. Exactly. A
2: woman ran over a guy's foot with a lawnmower. <laughs> yeah.
3: Exactly. <laughs> Exactly. Wonderful. It's incredible, right? It's one of it's such an amazing <laughs> moment. Yeah, exactly. Oh, for
4: the love of Christ! Oh my god! Ah, my foot!
3: He was a great account man.
4: Prodigy. Now that's all over. I don't know if that's true. The man is missing a foot. How is he going to work? He can't walk. The doctor said he'll never golf again.
3: That to me is is what makes those shows so great. There's never a tone of self seriousness or 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 uh um, yeah or like just we need we are going to be sad for sadness's sake i I sort of like don't I don't really gravitate to things like that because that doesn't feel authentic to me,
2: you know I think that's you have written on such like varied shows. It's not like oh, this is a core Jefferson show or this is a core Jefferson show. You've really managed not to get like pigeonholed into a specific genre or a specific approach. How do you do that?
3: I think that there's sometimes like a a virtue to ignorance in the way that Forrest Gump, I think, is like a good analogy for that. And just sort of like the way that Forrest Gump was just kind of like bouncing around and just like going where the the world took him. I think that that is that is kind of how i came into tv writing was just kind of ignorant and and, and unaware of, of the traditions of the of the industry and so when i came into it i came into it very much like oh i'm i'm going to try to be a tv writer now and so that mm-hmm. i think that that just means like i can i'm just a writer like you i'm i'm going to write everything just the way that you do and so the first script that i wrote was a drama Actually, despite the fact that I was on a comedy show, I I wrote a drama script and my manager read it and he was like, this is good, but now try writing a comedy. And so I wrote a comedy and I, and and then I wrote a comedy, but the the next show that I went to was a late night show where, where a lot of it was just like writing punchlines and just one sentence jokes and stuff. And so that was that was mm-hmm. a, a learning experience for me. And then from there I went to Master of None. And then from Master of None I went to the Good Place, which would you know for the network sitcom about philosophy and like and morality and ethics. And 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 then from there I went to Watchmen. So a genre thing. And then from there I went to Succession, which is like more grounded. I think that I think that for me it was just like it's going back to what I was saying about Baldwin and Didion. Like like I'm I'm a writer. I just want to write. And So I think that there's people who come into it saying like, I'm a comedy writer. They they come into it saying like, I write comedy and that's what I want to do. But to me, I think that, Man. you know, if you look at some of the careers of those, of the people who write like sort of the greatest dramas that people are obsessed with, you go back and, and a lot of those guys and women wrote on sitcoms to start with. They were writing on these sort of network sitcoms and then ended up 20 or 30 years later writing The Sopranos. And, and I think right. that you learn a lot too from working on those things. You learn a lot about structure and timing and scenes and acts, act breaks and stuff like that. I think that those are good places to develop your skills. But I think that for me, it was just, I came in saying that I wanted to be a writer. And when opportunities were presented to me to try something different, I took it. I I mean, that's the, if you want to, like if there's like a, secret to to my success. The first thing is luck. I don't like when successful people do not acknowledge the role yeah. that luck has played in their lives. And so mm-hmm. I, I feel in- incredibly lucky for some of the opportunities I've been given. But I think that it's also just a willingness to just risk humiliation and embarrassment and poverty for the sake of trying something new. That was always something that I've been willing to do is like I've had a willingness to risk those things in an effort to take a chance on something that may fail grandly, but, you know, I'm, I'm happy to try it.
2: You know, I was going to ask you what's missing from TV writing that you would like to see in the future. I think you kind of identified it, which is risk. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) At least from, from the perspective of a critic, but you know, from someone who's, Who's been in it for a few years.
3: Yeah, that's the key for everybody. I think that's, I mean, that to me is the key to life. I think that everybody should be comfortable being afraid. Mm-hmm. That, that is, I think, the problem with so much of humanity is that we are uncomfortable being afraid. And I think that if you can acknowledge, like, this scares me, but that's okay— if you can acknowledge that and then move forward with that fear in your heart and in your head then i think that that is going to result in in a in a lot of good things for you overall you know i'm just comfortable being afraid and comfortable saying like this this might be a disaster and and I, and i might embarrass myself and i i might take a hit to my career and i might lose all my money like i might i might end up you know having to crash on friends couches like You know, those are things that that I acknowledged as I pressed forward and and things that I did. And I think that it's it's served me well in the long run. I think that everybody should just be more comfortable being afraid and trying something new. You know,
2: words to live by.
3: That's been the thing that served me well.
2: Well, I I look forward to watching whatever results from your pen, keyboard, whatever. Thank you.
1: Keep scribbling. And thank you so much, Cord.
3: Thank you. Thank you for having me.
1: Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Vox Conversations. It was produced by Eric Janikis. Our editor is Amy Drovstovska. Daniel Turek mixed and mastered this episode. The theme music you heard is by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. And Liz Kelly Nelson is our editorial director of podcasts here at Vox and the executive producer of Vox Conversations. If you would love to let us know how you feel about the show, we would love to hear it. Send us an email, Conversations at vox.com. Dot .com or you can go old fashioned and just rate and review the show wherever you listen. Thanks so much.